Let's pray together as we begin uh, this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. In a measure that we couldn't possibly count. We thank you for the wonderful gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who was born in a humble manger in a little town called Bethlehem. We thank you, Father, that so many years later that we can gather together in one place to celebrate that truth of the appearance of the Son of God for our salvation. Help us, Lord God, to see it with fresh new eyes today and to receive it with an open heart. Transform us, Lord, by the washing of the water of the word. Implant in us, Lord, your spirit, that we may glorify and honor and worship you with our whole being. For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, uh, like I said, it's good to be back. Um, This morning, uh, what I... I'm almost tempted to ask you all to not take notes this morning. (laughs) I know there's a lot of you that have uh, notebooks and pens out. You can if you want to. I'm not going to frown on it. The reason why I'm going to ask that this morning, Pastor suggested to you, is that sometimes when we're so bogged down in the note-taking... We don't really see Christ with fresh new eyes. So we're too busy taking notes. In that uh, wonderful Christmas story in Luke 2, I don't think any of those shepherds were taking notes. (laughs) Somebody remembered what was going on, obviously, and Luke wrote it down. But I just want to encourage you to see Jesus in a new way today. And that's what this message is about. Because there are a few things in life more invigorating than first-time experiences. And, uh, you know, for example, the first taste of an exotic food. Quite an eye-opener, if you've ever had any. Um, Enter into the exotic foods of Scotland and having jalapeno haggis nachos. (laughs) Not soon to be forgotten. Very good, by the way. You remember the first time you ever tasted something like moxie? (sighs) My kids love that drink, not me. I can't deal with it. First time experiences, you can never repeat them really. First time experiences, they're one of a kind. They might be imitated, but never repeated. And that's why they're so full of wonder and intrigue. You think about things like the first steps of a young child. Or the first love of a sixth grade girl. The first night as husband and wife. First sound of a baby's cry. First time you rode your bike without training wheels. First times, there's nothing like them in all of the world. They're worth remembering. And a man by the name of Bob Edens would agree. Uh, Let me take you to a gifted writer's account of a very special first time in his book. God came near, Max Lucado, in his usual style, arrests us with his story. He says that 51 years, Bob Edens was a blind man. He couldn't see a thing. His world was black, a black hole filled with sounds and smells. 
He felt his way through five decades of darkness, and then all of a sudden he could see. Skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation, and for the first time he had sight, and he found it overwhelming. Quote, I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow. I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow, but red is my favorite color. So I'm wearing red today. I just can't believe red, he says. I can see the shape of the moon, and I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail behind it, and of course, sunrises and sunsets. And by the way, I don't know if any of you in Fayette caught the sunrise this morning, but it was phenomenal. It was really, really beautiful. And at night, he says, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. And he's right. Max Lucado says, those of us who have lived a lifetime with vision can't know how wonderful it must be to be given sight. If we were able to trade first-time stories with that man, most of us, after hearing his, would be reluctant to speak, wouldn't we? The wonder of seeing for the first time in 51 years is almost beyond our comprehension, yet for every person in this room, there is the potential to experience something even greater than what he did. You see, Bob isn't the only one who has spent a lifetime near something without actually seeing it. Again, Max comments, few are the people who don't suffer from some sort of blindness. Amazing, isn't it? We can live next to something for a lifetime, but unless we take time to focus on it, it doesn't become a part of our life. Unless we somehow have our blindness lifted, our world is but a black cave. Think about it. Just because one has witnessed a thousand rainbows doesn't mean he's seen the grandeur of one. No one, uh, one can live near a garden and fail to focus on the splendor of a single flower. A man can spend a lifetime with a woman and never pause to look into her soul. And a person can be all that goodness calls him to be and still never see the author of goodness, of life. And every one of us in this room can sing countless carols and we can send and read thousands of Christmas cards and hear a hundred messages preached on the birth of Christ and watch a myriad of Christmases come and go and still never see Jesus. We can sense the excitement and we can participate in the celebration year after year and never once meet the guest of honor. Today the phrase is, do you feel me? But Jesus is asking, do you see me? Have you seen him? Really? I'll tell you something from experience. There is nothing like Christmas after the first time you really see Jesus. My spiritual birthday came on Christmas Eve 37 years ago. There's nothing like the first Christmas after seeing Jesus for the first time. All of a sudden, you're thrust into this host of first-time experiences. For the first time, the words about his birth finally make sense to you. For the first time, your heart overflows with inexpressible joy. The songs of Christmas bring tears of joy and an intimate spiritual understanding 
to which fancy, expensive gifts cannot even hold a candle. Because you realize that the greatest of all gifts has been given to you. The story is alive for the very first time. But do you know what the best part is? It doesn't have to end. Every single year can be another first time. Every subsequent Christmas can bring another new vision of who Jesus really is. But if you've never really seen Jesus, then I've got one thing to say to you. Only what you see is what you're going to get. So what will you see this year? I was prompted to write these words some time ago, and I'd like to take the liberty today of fitting them into this season and this message. Here they are. And you won't be able to take notes. It's not even going to be on the screen. But you can listen on the website later. Listen, celebrating Christmas in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. Experiencing Christmas in its profoundest sense is nothing less than receiving him. To see his majesty and to receive his grace, that is the joy of Christmas. And so this Christmas, I'm inviting you to see and embrace Jesus. And I'm going to use a a common text here. Well, it might not be a very familiar text to you as far as Christmas is concerned, but it's it's one of my favorite ones for Christmas, and it's in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And it simply says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, I love the exhortation that Paul gives. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And that could apply to what follows as well. But wrapped within those few verses there are some of the most significant truths about Jesus that you'll ever come to know. And I'm so glad that Dom chose the songs and, and that pointed us to the fact that it's not just Jesus coming at Christmas, but it's Jesus present in us today, but also that he's coming again. So in this, these few verses here, there are very significant truths here, more than you could possibly take in in one setting. And I call this one of those passages of Scripture, it's, it's theo- theological concentrate. Need to add a lot of water of the Holy Spirit to really grasp their depth. It's three times more truth here than meets the eye. But after paring it down, at least three thoughts contained here identify whether or not a person really, really has seen Jesus. What do you see When you really see Jesus, well, first of all, I think this text brings out something very clear. We find the revelation of a tremendous, tremendous gift. Verse 11, 
Again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God has appeared. Someone once said that the word grace is unquestionably the most significant single word in the Bible. And I would have to agree to that. And I was able to see what God's grace is like again for the first time, another first time again, while we were in Scotland. Two days before we were scheduled to leave to come home, we were in the city of Edinburgh, which is a huge city, very congested with traffic and easy to get lost in the city, especially driving on the wrong side of the street. (laughs) And we had gone to the Christmas markets, my family and I, and Aaron and Bethany and the two boys, and uh, we were in a car park, and so we left the car park to go home for Denise's birthday dinner, which we had reservations for back in St. Andrews. We left, and uh, because of the congestion, Aaron um, and I got separated. So he texted us and said, you want us to pull over? I said, now we probably will miss you. I'll just put it in my GPS, and we've done that travel before, so we kind of were familiar with it. So we got separated, and went up to the next intersection, took a right, headed down through an intersection, light was green, and there was a line of cars stopped. Um, Somebody up front was turning left, had to wait for traffic, so we were stopped. And instinctively, as most of you probably do, when you're stopped in traffic and somebody's making a left-hand turn, you look in your rearview mirror to make sure somebody's not going to hit you. So I looked in my rearview mirror, And I saw the headlights of a double-decker bus bearing down, not slowing down. And then the headlights disappeared. And then the hit. And we got hit from behind at about 30 miles an hour by this huge bus. And we're in this little pregnant roller skate of a car. (laughs) It was me and my wife and my grandson, Abel, in the back seat. And it was surreal. It's like, I've been hit before from behind, and it's one bang, and then everything quiets down. But this was more than that. It was bang, then bang, then bang, then bang. Five-car pileup before it was all over. I looked up, and the guy first checking if everybody was okay, I said to my wife, I said, you better text Aaron and tell him we just got hit by a bus. (laughs) I looked up. I saw a gentleman get out of the car in front of me, and lo and behold, it was my son. Somehow we reconnected, and I got behind him in that traffic. So we, the bus hit us, we hit him, he hit the car in front of him, and that car hit the taxi cab in front of them. Five-car pileup. Both my son's cars totaled. Now, if you were to see the pictures, you'd be like, Wow. God had his hands of grace protecting you because my poor grandson was in the back seat and got the brunt of that, and that little tiny car had nothing to the back of it. If if that bus had been any other vehicle, I'm convinced, and it wasn't a flat, low front, and it hit the frame and pushed us, pancaked the back and busted out the window, I thought that bus was going to come right through us. Turns out that everybody was okay, minor whiplash, a little bit of sore hand where I smashed my hand on the steering wheel, but everybody was good. 
Praise the Lord. But that was a big first accident in Scotland. There were police everywhere. There were ambulances everywhere. And, of course, traffic was stopped for hours. And, um, but I will say that the people there were very kind, very helpful. But that was a revelation to me of God's grace. So God's grace saved us from great harm. But the ultimate revelation of God's grace is not that we're saved from physical harm. It's that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to save us for eternity from spiritual death. William Hendrickson calls God's grace his active favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. The Greeks of Paul Day knew of grace, but in pagan Greece, the term grace referred to something that was conferred upon friends, never enemies. But in Christianity, the term takes a dynamic turn. Through the birth and ultimate death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's grace is made available as a gift, not exclusively to people who loved him, his friends, but precisely for those who hated him, his enemies. And by the way, that was you and me before we came to Christ. Ephesians 2 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The only thing that any human being since Adam and Eve could rightfully expect from God was punishment for sin. Yet in that meager stable was a tiny heart that beat for our salvation. Hard to grasp, isn't it? But that's what it says. And it didn't just appear nonchalantly either. The word Paul uses here in Titus means to appear suddenly, to become visible all of a sudden. It's from this word that we derive our English word epiphany. You know that word? For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says. It was an epiphany. In other words, Christ just didn't make a simple appearance like we do at a party. Ah, we're just going to go make an appearance so everybody, you know, will like us. No. In his birth, Almighty God became visible to the world in the form of a baby. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his what? Glory. You know what the definition of glory is? Check this out. Make a note in your mind. I know you're all wishing you could write it down, aren't you? (laughs) God's displayed excellence. God's displayed excellence. We saw that. John said he saw that in Jesus. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ burst on the scene, albeit unnoticed, so that we would one day understand the true meaning of the grace of God. He pierced the spiritual darkness, bringing light into the world, literally. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Dom read it a few minutes ago. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. 
a light that will shine on all who live in the land where death casts its shadow. What land is that? The whole earth, right? That prophecy was given to Israel, but it has application to all of us, doesn't it? It was the appearance of Christ that brought salvation to man. In the arms of that baby, in the shelter of that tiny, unassuming, hay-filled space, rested the opportunity for salvation for every man, woman, and child ever born, ever to be born. Paul says, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Chris talked about it last week. The good news of great joy, right? Front to you is born today for, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This good news for who? All the people. Christ was and still is God's gift to the world. No longer would he be considered a deus absconditus, which means a God who hides himself as Isaiah described in Isaiah 45, 15. No, he would be a God made visible to the world in Jesus. Jesus is the human face of God. Does that mean that everyone will be saved when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men? Does that mean everyone's going to be saved? Not if you compare other scriptures. But what Christ's birth brought was universal opportunity, but not universal appropriation. Salvation is made available to all who will come, but it is only applicable to those whom God has drawn and who have personally received him by faith. Are you being drawn this morning? Have you opened your heart to receive him by faith? Is God prompting you? Maybe even right now. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. So how shall we escape, says the writer of Hebrews, if we neglect so great a salvation? God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yet there are many, possibly some people that are sitting right here in this room or that room out there who for one reason or another won't come. They don't see it. There are people, many people, who come through these doors week after week, year after year, completely miss the whole point of who Jesus is. How many times did I go to church growing up as a young Catholic boy? Every single week, without fail. And yet I never, until I was 24 years old, saw who Jesus was. I'm pleading with you this morning. Don't be one of those people. Please. If you truly want to experience a genuine celebration of Christmas, you need to see Christ for who he is. The revelation of a tremendous, undeserved gift. The grace of God which brings salvation to you. 
That seeing Jesus is more than just a revelation. It carries with it a great responsibility. Seeing Jesus means accepting the responsibility of living a transformed life. And that's what we find as we look at verses 12 and 13 here in Titus 2. Instructing us, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God not only appeared to bring salvation, but it also, he also appeared to give us instruction on how to live. Grace trains us. How? Just as a parent trains a child. One step at a time. Comprehensively moving us to become more and more like Christ. Grace teaches us, disciplines us, encourages us, comforts us, corrects us, convicts us. It counsels us to do the things that characterize a life that is transformed by Jesus. Let me give you just three things here that it trains us in. It trains us to let go, to live right, and to look ahead. That's what it's all contained right here in verses 11 through 13. First of all, a transformed life is one that lets go of the sinful patterns of our past. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Paul says that grace aims at instructing us to deny these things. This, that is what colored our lives before we came to know Jesus, right? Sin. It ran rampant. And we had no power and frankly, very little desire. I don't know about you, but I didn't really have any desire to leave my sinful life until Jesus came in and ravished my soul. But God's grace calls us to be different people now. Amen? Amen. Ephesians. Let's look at a few verses here of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. First three verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You hear what he's saying there? Dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Skip over to chapter 4. Look at verse 22, beginning in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. 
For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them for you were formerly in darkness, but now you are, what's it say? Light. You are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The grace of God instructs us to get rid of that old guy, not me. Put the old man of sin off. Listen to the way the other versions render Titus 2.12. The English, uh, today's English version says, quote, grace instructs us to give up ungodly living and worldly passions. J.B. Phillips translates it like this. It teaches us to have no more to do with godlessness or the desires of this world. But most of you probably have an NIV. It's one of my favorite translations uh, of this verse in the NIV. I don't usually like the NIV, but in this verse, it translates it really well. Plainly states that grace, quote, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Just say no. Where have you heard that before? I mean, years ago, that there was a Just Say No program in schools all across the country. Saying no to drugs, say no to sex, say no to et cetera, et cetera. What a wonderful discovery. But you know what? It's nothing new. It's right here in the Bible. Are you saying no to ungodly things and worldly passions? The things which suck you into the loyalty to this world's system of thought? Because that's what it does. It sucks you into its vortex. And once you get in there, it's hard to climb out. God says that his grace has appeared to teach us that by saying no to anything that is antagonistic to God and anything that feeds our worldly lusts is the only way that we can begin to live right for God. But do we say no? No. We play with it. We play with sin, don't we? And I'm right there with the rest of you. We just, we kind of like dance around with it. We push it to the outer limits, our abilities, just to see how far we can go before we actually cross the line. Instead of flat out avoiding what's wrong, we put ourselves in places where sin will have incredible pull on us. And then we wonder why we fall. What's that all about? 
I'll tell you what it's all about. It's about toying with sin and rationalizing it. Jim Simbel, a pastor of New York's Brooklyn Tabernacle, once made this very provocative statement. He said, we have institutionalized backsliddenness. It's quite a statement. But it's unjustifiable according to this verse in Titus. Because playing with sin is flat-out contradiction to what grace is trying to teach us, right? Grace says, deny it, refuse it, reject it, disown it. We need to learn how to say no to it. Because why? Here it is. If we refuse to deny what we know is wrong, it will be downright impossible to live what is right. So the question is, what are you fooling around with? What am I fooling around with in my lifestyle? What is it that's in your life right now that you know you shouldn't have anything to do with? Now, I'm not just talking about the big things. They're all big in God's eyes, right? All sin is big. But there's things that maybe are so subtle I think Jerry Bridges calls them respectable sins. Things like greed or envy or deceit or slander or gossip or disobedience. What Those are types of ungodliness too. And worldly passions, of course, lust, materialism, pride, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. All of that is what Christ came specifically to destroy. That's why he appeared. 1 John chapter 3. Good verse to underline in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. It's one of the reasons that he came. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. It's great news, isn't it? Bottom line is that you can't see Jesus You and I can't see Jesus when we're distracted by the world. When we're focused or fixated on worldly passions, we can't see Jesus. He's all blurry. Grace teaches us to leave that past, put it to rest. On a positive note, it also teaches us something else. A transformed life is one that lives for God in the present. So he says, the grace of God teaches us to live right, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You know, that's a conscious and a voluntary decision that we do that. Once we refuse to continue in all the junk of the past, we can live sensibly with inward stability and self-control because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
We can live righteously without with integrity and honesty. We can live godly with spiritual dignity, even in the midst of a generation that is out of control. And we live in the midst of a generation out of control, don't we? Absolutely out of control. Jesus said that we are not of the world, even though we're in it. Seeing Jesus means accepting that responsibility of living that transformed life. It means leaving the sins of the past, living for God in the present. And then thirdly, here in verse 13, a transformed life is one that is looking to God for the future. Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord of our great God, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Look ahead. Look ahead, because he's coming. You know, there's a word that describes those who are now being trained by God's grace. You know what it is? Expectancy. Do you live in expectancy? People who really see Jesus have not only let go, they're not just attempting to live right, but they're constantly looking ahead. Ever waiting, ever watchful, ever ready for Jesus to return. You ever met someone like that? Someone who seems like they're on the edge of their seat anticipating Christ's return at any moment? They're rare. You know, when Jesus came the first time, there were at least a handful of people, Scripture records, that were really in that category. They were really watching. In Luke chapter 2, In verse 25, we meet one. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking for Jesus. And then lo and behold... The parents bring him into the temple and it had been revealed to this Simeon that by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custody of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. We just sang about it. Glorious. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. That's called the Nuke Dimittis of Simeon, one of the songs of Luke 2. Next year I might do a series of the four song Christmas songs of Luke. That's one of them. And then there was another one, right directly after that, we meet Anna. In verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. And later on in Luke, in chapter 23, we meet yet one more. Verse 51, uh, 50 and 51. 
chapter 23, verses 50 and 51. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. That'd be a great thing to be said about you, right? Most people, however, in that day when Jesus was born were caught off guard. They either weren't looking or they were looking at the wrong thing. Some of them mocked and didn't believe he was coming at all. He's coming again, you know, to a world filled with the same kinds of people. Which group will you be in? Be ready, Jesus said. Have your lamps alight. If celebrating Christmas in its purest form is seeing Jesus and experiencing Christmas is receiving him who we see, then truly embracing Christmas is nothing short of looking for him who will come again. Are you looking for him? Are you expecting him? Are you living on the edge of your seat in expectancy for him? And would your life attest to that fact? Uh, too often I claim to believe that he's coming back at any moment, but I probably conduct my life, as do you, some of you, as if he were never returning. It's just like, yeah, maybe that'll be later. No, we need to know that he might come right now. Otherwise, we might miss him. You know, the fact ought to enhance our anticipation because he promised, I will come again, and Jesus keeps his promises. That's our blessed hope. He always keeps his promises, amen? His first appearance was cradled in grace, but his next one was going to be crowned with glory. First time he came, he came veiled in the form of a child. The next time he comes, he will come unveiled and it will be abundantly and immediately clear to all the world just who he really is. The first time he came, a star marked his arrival. The next time he comes, the whole heavens, it says, will be rolled up like a scroll and all the stars will fall out of the sky and he himself will light the sky. The first time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him gifts. The next time he comes, he's the one that's going to be bringing gifts and rewards to his own. The first time he came, there was no room for him. The next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few attended his arrival, some shepherds and some wise men. The next time he comes, every eye will see him. And at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The first time he came as a baby, soon he will be coming as sovereign king and Lord. Are you ready? Are you looking? Are you expectant? Because when we see Jesus, we will see God himself. And even though this verse in Titus 2, verse 13 as well as many others in the New Testament, explicitly states Christ's deity. Look at, look at for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's a pretty explicit statement that Jesus Christ is God. 
But even though that's there, as, as well as a number of others in the New Testament, people have always argued the fact that Christ is not God. Personally, I like what the early church father, Tertullian, said. He said, quote, they should have known that Christ was God. His patience should have told them. And the fact that Jesus is God is what makes the next few words of verse 14 so absolutely incredible. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Who gave himself for us. Even though he was God, he took it upon himself to become a man. And being found as an an appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul wrote to the Philippians. Why? Because of his intense love for each one of us and for each one of you. When you finally see Jesus in that light, you're not moved by simply the recognition of a tremendous gift that he is, nor are you driven solely by the responsibility that we have now of living a transformed life. But I think when you really see Jesus, you're floored by the realization of God's transcendent love. You have to be. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Never forget that the star that lit the way to Bethlehem, to a Bethlehem cradle, cast the shadow of a cross that loomed over Calvary. And in the midst of his journey from one to the other, guess who he had in mind? You. He had you and me in mind. And every other individual on the face of the earth. As well as his chosen people, Israel. And why does he have you on his mind? Because he loves you. With an everlasting love. That means before eternity began and on into eternity forever. That's mind-boggling. And my prayer for you this Christmas is that you will have eyes to truly see that, maybe for the very first time in your life. First times, you know, there's nothing like them in the whole entire world. They're worth remembering. Let me close with another first. I hesitate to do this because I have shared this story before, but it is so... illustrates so much what we need to see. One of the first eye transplants that ever took place was in Manhattan, New York, on the 27th of January, 1951. It was done on a South African citizen. Another man had died in Michigan and donated his eyes, and they did the eye transplant on the South African man. And when the man was finally returning home to South Africa to see his family for the very first time, The South African newspaper headline read like this, quote, he will see his family for the first time through a dead man's eyes. Well, think about that. What an incredible thought when you imply that to Christmas. 
In essence, the only way that you and I will ever see the true gift of what we celebrate is to see it through a new set of eyes. For it is through the dying of the God-man, Jesus on the cross, that your spiritual sight and mine became possible. Through his death, you and I live. Through the closing of his eyes on Calvary, our eyes can be opened fully. His was the separation from his father so that yours and mine can be eternity. His was the curse of sin so that yours and mine might be the blessing of God. When he hung on that cross, he lifted you up and he lifted me up. And he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as Russ shared this morning. Through a dead man's eyes, you and I are able to truly see. Now, when you look at the manger this Christmas, just remember that the same Jesus who was huddled in a cradle is the Christ who was hung on a cross. The one whose life had a humble private beginning had a scandalous public end. And in the midst of it all, you were on his mind every step of the way, and so was I. And he gave himself voluntarily for you and for me. He redeemed us and paid the excruciating price for our eternal salvation. In the prophetic words of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, in what is known as the Benedictus of Zacharias, another song of Luke 2, uh, Luke 1, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. What an immeasurable gift. A humble infant, an innocent man, an all-powerful God, a willing substitution, ready to pay the ultimate ransom price to rescue us from the slave market of sin. He delivered us from bondage and he brought us into freedom. But his atoning work didn't just deliver us from being enslaved to sin. It completely washed us clean from our guilt. Complete forgiveness is exactly what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for us. Psalm 103, great psalm. says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who? Who fear him. Peace among men with whom his favor rests. People are right with God. Christ gave himself for us in order to purify us and make us his own people, a people in passion to do his will. You see how significant you are to Christ. See how much he loves you? And if that's not enough, the last scripture here I'll read to you is in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. If you address this father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, 
from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And here's the key thing. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times, and I love this, for the sake of you. It's right there. Verse 20, 1 Peter 1. He appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Would you do something for me this week as you prepare your heart for celebrating your Christmas on the 25th? And maybe even you want to do it right now as I end this message. Open your Bible at some point in time on Christmas Day and read Titus 11, chapter 2, 11 through 14. And fill your name in the obvious places where it says all men or us or a people. Stick your name in there. And then ask yourself, this Christmas, will I really see Jesus? Will I receive him and embrace him? John Henry Joward once said, we get no deeper into Christ than we allow him to get into us. Look a little deeper at Jesus this year and what he's done for us, for you, and see him again, maybe this time for the first time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like a brilliant shaft of sunlight piercing the dark clouds of a stormy day, like an unexpected visit from a dear friend at a moment of pained loneliness, like the surprise of winning when loss had already been conceded. So the appearing of your love and kindness, Jesus, has astonished us and set our hearts at rest. Thank you for loving us, Lord, not because of our goodness, but because of your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.